Welcome to the hills, and where we believe God has called us to follow Jesus, love our neighbors, and build an economically and racially diverse church. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 9, it's page 765 on the, the Bible under your chair. Acts 9, page 765. So we've been studying the book of Acts for about four months now, going through and, and looking at uh, the narrative and each story. And, and sometimes when you go through uh, a book of the Bible like that, looking at each of the stories, sometimes we can get our head down a little bit and forget like there's an overarching theme in the book of Acts. There is something that God is doing. And we, I believe that theme is found in Acts 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so far, the first seven chapters of Acts are all around Jerusalem. Uh, and there's not much movement happening yet until there's some persecution that comes against the believers. And so it scatters them. And in Acts chapter 8, we see the gospel goes to the Samaritans who were despised. It also goes to the, the outcast from Africa receives the gospel as well. And so this, this movement is starting to happen, and it's orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. And chapter 1 begins in Jerusalem. Chapter 28 ends in Rome, the, the seat of power in the known world. And um, as we go through the, the book of Acts, we're not just going through so that we can understand like how we ended up here today in Denver, mostly Gentiles, worshiping a Jewish Messiah from the Middle East. We, we will take that away as we go through the, the, the book of Acts, but uh, more, more than that, I hope that as we're reading it and going through in it, that you'll be captivated by the story. Like in some way, you'll, see, you'll say, what is my place in God's story? And that as we go through that, you'll, you'll put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, like as they go and as they travel and as they are as they're persecuted, as they give everything for Jesus, uh, they give their... I mean, just they're all, they're, they're spirit-led boldness. Um, they, they suffer and they face death and they take every opportunity to tell of their faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. So this isn't just for first century believers. And the Holy Spirit is asking you today, what is your place in this movement? Like what, what is your place in the story in our neighborhood and in the world? Like Matthew, that's a big question, I don't know. Well, that's all right. I, I hope, though, that you're beginning to ask yourself that, your, that question. And as you think of what it means to be the church, that it's so much more than just gathering here on Sundays. Like we come, we gather, we worship, and we encourage one another and we learn. But then we go out and we have something to do. And each of us, God has given something to do. And, and so that is my prayer, that as we go through the book of Acts, that you would begin to ask yourself and ask of God, God, what is my place in this story? What is my place in your story? So Acts chapter 9, verse 1, says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, Saul was no friend to Christians. Right? He's almost pictured here as a, as a dragon, like breathing out murderous threats. And this is his ongoing, just a state of being. Uh, and we've previously encountered Saul a couple times as, as we've gone through the text, and just almost like throwaway lines. Like Saul was there, and in particular, at the end of Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is the first Christian martyr. 
Uh, he, he stands up, Stephen stands up, and he gives his testimony and who he believes Jesus is, and he's taken out of, of the city, and they stone him to death. And there it says, in Acts chapter 7, at this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their lungs. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then in a couple more verses, it says, Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Uh, So Saul, a real pleasant fellow, this guy, um, just a, a bitter enemy of Christians. And I almost, in my mind, get the idea of like the Gestapo, you know, during uh, World War II and the, the uh, Hitler's kind of secret police or the KGB going into just different houses and, and dragging people out of the houses. That's the, the idea that I, that I picture. Uh, you may have a different picture, but that's the idea that I, I get when I read Acts and I see what, what Saul is, is doing. And I mean, he, he arrested women as well which might tell us something about the participation of women in the early church. Like they were right there uh, doing, doing the work. Uh, and apparently, Saul hoped to contain the Christians in Jerusalem. Like if we can just get them here, but some had escaped. In fact, some had escaped to Damascus. And so I've got a, a map here. I believe I'll just show you where, if we, oh, that's smaller than I was anticipating. It's not so far. Uh, so Jerusalem it's still modern-day Jerusalem. Damascus was about 200 miles to the north uh, by the roads that you could take. And actually, during the Roman Empire, you could travel there in moderate safety. Today, you cannot travel from Jerusalem to Damascus, Syria. Uh, and so Saul, he gets basically what's equivalent to like arrest warrants, extradition, uh, notices from the from the chief priest, and he's going to go, and he's determined to pursue the fugitives um, to Damascus. And the language that Scripture uses to talk about Saul is, is almost one like he's a ravenous beast. Like the, the verbs that are used are like he is just one, he's focused, and, and he is out to destroy uh, this church. And, but little does he know that his life is about to change. It is about to change. And we know a few things about Saul from the writings in the New Testament. He's from Tarsus. Now, Tarsus on the map, if you go up, you follow the uh, Mediterranean Sea just up around to the left there. Uh, it's in modern-day Turkey. And that's where, that's where Tarsus was, where, where it is. It's still uh, a major city. There's several million people in that metropolis area there in Turkey. Um, but uh, Tarsus, like for us, it doesn't mean a whole lot. But at the time in the Roman Empire, it was one of the leading uh, thought-producing cities in the whole Roman Empire. It had one of the largest libraries in the world. Only, only the uh, cities of Athens and Alexandria surpassed Tarsus as an important learning center. And so that, that's where Saul was from. So we believe that Saul was educated in the best classical education of his time. Like he, um, in, in a few chapters, when he... he he turns to Christianity, he begins preaching. He actually quotes some of the poets of his day, like it, like it was no big deal. So he knew classic literature, but we also know that he was trained as a rabbi. Um, and in fact, his travels took him to Jerusalem where he studied under Gamaliel, who is not just mentioned in Scripture, but also mentioned outside of Scripture as, as one of the great rabbis of the day. 
So here you have Saul, and, and on the surface here, it doesn't look like he'd be much of a candidate uh, for being a leader in the church, especially with his hatred towards the church. But God was at work um, in his life, and, and when you look at God's design and planning, like even in our own lives, it doesn't always make sense. Like until after the fact, you know, we're, we're like, God, where are you? God, are, do, you, do you hear my prayers, God? And, and I imagine the early church, when they, they felt the, the persecution coming from Saul, like, like God, where, what are you doing? Like, where are you? But all along, God knew what he was doing in, in through Saul. And uh, so we'll pick up in verse 3, Acts 9, verse 3. It says, as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? I love that Jesus says, why do you persecute me? He he identifies uh, with his followers and Jesus identifies with us in our, in our lives and, and things that we, we might be going through. And, um, and to persecute Jesus' followers is to persecute him. And, and when we follow Christ, it's not just that we're introduced into a new social club, but we are part of the body of Christ. Why do you persecute me? And this revelation that Saul's hearing this, it must have have shaken Saul, because we'll see in a second, he asked some questions like, who, who are you, Lord? And, and he comes for the the first time in his life, he realizes that every stone that was cast at Stephen was a stone cast against God himself. That every home that he had stormed into was a home that, that truly worshiped God. That every person he had forcibly dragged through the streets to jail was a true follower of God. And, and everyone who follows Christ, we have that, there's a moment in our life where we realize that we need a Savior. There, there's a moment where we realize, like Saul is realizing here as we go through this, that I'm lost apart from you, God, that I, I need you. And, and despite our best efforts, and, and that's not to say like, like Saul that we're murderers, but it is to say that we all fall short and that we need a Savior. And so that's what is happening to Saul. He's, he's hearing the voice of Jesus. He says in verse 5, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city, and I will, uh, and you will be told what you must do. Then uh, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered, The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call in your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, this is is the most uh, known conversion story in all of Christendom. Like in the history of the church, uh, this is the the most uh, known story. In fact, Luke finds it so important that he recounts this three times. Like he tells us here, and then in a couple chapters, Saul is going to be telling his story, and he's standing to give it a defense, and he gives the account again. And then a a couple chapters later, Saul gives the, the account a third time. Now, it wasn't like Luke could just go down to Office Max in Jerusalem or wherever he's writing from and just pick up another roll of parchment. Like, it was easy to come by. I mean, he could have, as he's writing, he could have, uh, like in the further stories, said something like, and Saul told them how he came to Jesus. Or Saul told them what happened to him on the road to Damascus. But there must be something so important that, in, uh, that Luke records it three times. I don't know why it's that important. (laughs) I'm just saying that that there is something so important about this and so that we should pay attention. Now, as I've been talking this morning, you've probably heard me say Saul. Sometimes I'm going to slip and say Paul. And and some preachers, they get real excited about this Saul and Paul thing. You might have heard them. Like Saul the persecutor became Paul the apostle. No? Am I the only one? And it makes for a good preaching It's just not very accurate, like as far as the names go. So he did go from being a persecutor to an apostle, but in Scripture, his name is sometimes Saul, it's sometimes Paul, and the only difference is Saul was his his Hebrew, uh, his Jewish name, and Paul, when he goes and starts uh, talking with the Gentiles outside of Jerusalem, he goes by Paul. It's not so uncommon from uh, someone that that comes here, and, and may be from a different country, and takes grace upon us ignorant Americans who can only speak one language, and so they give us an Americanized name, but back home it's a different name. Uh, so for, for example, uh, my man Togi. Is Togi still in here? Did he slip out? Mm, he's in trouble. So uh, Togi, Togi is not Togi's his, his given name from Indonesia. Uh, it's closer to like Yeshua, like Joshua. So his family actually calls him Josh which I find interesting, <laughs> but all of us call him Togi. So same thing with Saul. Uh, even after Saul comes uh, to faith, he's called Saul several, uh, several times. So as I'm going this morning, I may accidentally uh, go back and forth between Saul and Paul. Is that all right? You know who I'm talking about? Same guy. He was a changed person. His name didn't change. So. Uh, but what, what strikes me about this narrative, and we're going to have two more opportunities as we go through the book of Acts to look at it. Uh, so today, like, if you don't remember anything else, like, the most important thing that you can remember today is that God is relentlessly pursuing you. God is relentlessly pursuing you, and in, in Paul's conversion, who takes the initiative? Is it, is it God or is it Saul? Obviously. I mean, Saul did not wake up that morning thinking, all right, Today's the day I'm putting my hope in Jesus. Like that, that was not on his mind. It was the farthest, farthest thing from, from his mind. I mean, he was not open. He wasn't seeking. Um, but God had other plans. And, and this encounter on the road to Damascus seems like a sudden, like instantaneous one-time event. And obviously there were some sudden things about it. It says suddenly there was a light. But I, I think... 
that God was, was working and pursuing Paul long before this, this moment, was, was doing some things in his life. And, and I actually get that uh, from Acts chapter 26 when, when Saul is recounting this story. He actually adds a little bit of detail that Luke doesn't add here. And, and Saul, uh, or Jesus said to Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Like, what is, what is a goad? A good, good question. And why is Paul kicking against it? Well, a goad was used in agriculture. Uh, just, and we use the word goad a little bit, like, but usually it's more in a uh, protagonistic, like I may say, uh, to, let's say I had two boys, for example. And, and one of them happened to stay in here from not go to kids' church today, so I'm going to be a little careful. Uh, but I'd be like, son, why are you goading your brother to do such and such? Right? Why are you provoking him to do such and such? And so a goad was a long staff with a pointed end that a, a farmer or something would, would, would actually poke the cattle to get them to go to where they wanted. And if, if the cattle kicked against the goad, well, it was just easier to obey. And so the imagery is here is of Jesus has been trying to goad Paul, and, and Paul has been kicking against the goad. And Jesus is like, why, why are you doing that? I've been trying to get your attention. And, and we're not told what those goads might, might have been. But the implication is that Jesus has been pursuing Paul before this moment. Like he has he's been uh, trying to get his attention. And, you know, it's a little bit of speculation of what that, that might be. Uh, but maybe, maybe Paul or Saul had seen Jesus during his days on earth. Because uh, Saul was a contemporary of Jesus, probably about the same age, and would have gone to Jerusalem for his training. Jesus spent a lot of time in Jerusalem at, around the temple, and, and it, even if Saul had not seen Jesus, he probably had heard of his teachings. So maybe there's something in the back of his mind where he's like, I remember that Jesus guy, because they, they would have been about the same age, and this was only a couple years after Jesus at this point. Or maybe he's having a hard time sleeping at night because he remembers Stephen. Like maybe there was something about the way that Stephen died and, and the scripture says that everyone saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And he died with such courage and compassion, praying for those who were stoning him that maybe there was something deep inside of Saul that was like, I, what was that about? What was, what was going on there? Um, Carl Jung, the, the founder of analytical psychology, once said, fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating secret doubts. Like, because I have, I have doubts about this, I'm going I'm to be a little bit fanatical about it. And as with Paul, God is pursuing us. God's Holy Spirit is, in a sense, is, is goading us to him. There's a recent song, and I, I like the, the bridge of it. It says, there's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. And the idea is that Jesus is relentlessly pursuing us. He is pursuing us. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws them. And then in John 15, Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, one thing is certain from these, these texts is that we do not initially of our own seek God. We don't. But God comes first and seeks for us. And, and even Saul would later write that no one seeks God in Romans chapter 3. And, and since we don't naturally seek God, uh, those, when we do seek God, it's only because he's been seeking after us first. 
Like he is the one who takes the first step. He is the one who initiates the pursuit. And um, 1 John 4.10 says, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for his sins, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is Jesus who takes that first step and pursues and pursues us. Um, now, in immediate, the careful observers we're going through might think, well, Matthew, Paul didn't really have a choice. I mean, like, God, bright light, on the ground, like, this was not, uh, he didn't have a choice. But I think, but I think he still did. Because while he was, he was humbled, he didn't lose his personality. Like, he's able to ask reasonable questions back, like, who are you? Uh, another time when, when Paul recounts the story, he'll, he'll ask the question, what do you want me to do? So he still had his agency and he still had his, his freedom and, and grace doesn't trample our personality, but it enables us to be truly human because it's sin that imprisons us and causes us not to be free. And there was an uh, English poet, his name was Francis Thompson in the 1800s. He's not too popular today. He's kind of fallen into obscurity. But at, at his height, um, and even in the last century, there were quite a few writers that looked to him and respected him, G.K. Chesterton, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, even Oscar Wilde, after reading one of his poems, said, why can't I write like that? And so he was uh, just a profound writer, but his story, so much sorrow and failure and addiction. He, he grew up in a, a comfortable family in London. His, his dad was a doctor, and so when it came time for him to go to the university, he went to study medicine. Um, but there weren't a whole lot of, like if you got sick back in the 1800s, there weren't a lot of remedies for you, except for opiates. And so like a lot of people in London, he got hooked on opiates. And, and within a couple years, in his 20s, he went from a comfortable life to living on the street, to sleeping by the River Thames and with the homeless and, um, and just had, n- had nothing because of his, his addiction, his constant uh, addiction problem. And, and so he, at one point, he even attempted suicide. But about that time, a London prostitute took him in and began to care for him. And he, he, um, had, he had written down some of his poems, and when he gave it to the publisher, just still about this time, he's still living, um, it's early, still basically homeless, he apologized because the, the manuscript was so soiled, was so dirty. And he said, it's not because I'm lazy, but it's because of the circumstances under which these poems have been written. Like he just, uh, like he was a down and out, uh, had, had nothing. And he eventually made his way to a monastery where he spent his final years, and he died at the age of 48 from tuberculosis. His, his most famous poem was called The Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven. And it was written during those years of living on the street. He said, I fled him. Down the nights and down the days, I fled him. Down the arches of the years, I fled him. Down the labyrinth ways of my mind and in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up visted hopes, I sped and shot, precipitated. Adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet all things betray thee, who betrayest me? The hound of heaven, the poem goes on, that's just the, 
the first portion of it, but the idea is of the old English uh, fox hunts where they would release 20 or 30 hounds and the hounds would always get their quarry. And, and for uh, Thompson, the idea was this hound of heaven that God is pursuing me, that I can hear him no matter where I am, how far down I've gone in my luck. There is this, this voice that I can hear calling after me, the footsteps of God himself coming after me. And he knew that hound is the God who draws sinners to himself even as they flee his voice and his voice still beseeches us. His, his feet still give chase. The hound of heaven pursues us. And so for Thompson, his life is not known by his addiction to opiates, but by the paw prints of the hound, he says, relentlessly pursued his soul. Uh, there's a, a more recent author, Eugene Peterson, passed away. He was 85 just a couple weeks ago. A prolific writer, theologian. Uh, he he uh, spurred countless hundreds of thousands of people to read God's word. He translated the Bible into the message version. You may have come across that. Um, but at his funeral, his son got up uh, to eulogize him and basically said, my dad's been fooling everybody all these years. Here's what he said. It's almost laughable how you fooled them, how for 30 years every week you made them think you were saying something new. Because he, he was a pastor. They thought you were a magician hiding so much in your ample sleeves, always pulling something fresh and making them think it was just for them. They didn't know how simple it was. They were blind to your secret. It's the same message over and over. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. And that was the message of Eugene Peterson over and over and week after week as he stood to preach. And see, God loves us with an unwavering love. Like our, our brokenness doesn't push him away or it, it doesn't cast us off. Like no matter, I mean, a lot of times I think we get this picture of, of a God who is harsh and a God who wants to, to push us away. But if God is calling out to Paul, then he's calling out to us. If he's calling out to the one who was a murderer, he's calling out to us and his love is unwavering. It's never stopping, never giving up. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his account of coming to Christ, likened, uh, likened God to a fisherman after his fish or a cat after his mouse or a pack of hounds after his fox or a divine chess player putting him into checkmate. Like no matter where C.S. Lewis turned, who was an atheist before coming to Jesus, he was like, he, he could sense the, the spirit was pursuing him, was, was goading him. God is relentlessly pursuing you. Now, it may be, not be as dramatic as Saul. Like sometimes I think we want that dramatic experience. Like God, if you would just shine the light down, if you would speak in that voice from heaven, well, then I would know. But do you really want that? I mean, what happened to Saul after this? I mean, he was blind, but, thanks, son, Jesus told, was telling him all the ways that he would have to suffer for him. And I think one of the reasons that, that Jesus chose this way to have the bright light in this encounter where, where Saul couldn't see for three days is because Jesus knew what was in front of Saul. And there were going to be times in Saul's life when he needed to look back and say, I've been commissioned by Jesus himself. And so be careful what you wish for when it comes to this uh, heavenly voice. But all of us can encounter Jesus. 
today if we will put our faith and put our trust in him. And, and Paul would later write to one of his apprentices, one, someone who he was bringing up in the faith, Timothy. He said, Timothy, for that very reason, I've, I was shown mercy so that in me the worst, the worst, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And in other words, uh, Christ's display of immense patience towards Paul was meant to be an encouragement to us. It was meant to encourage us, meant to show us that God is patient with us too. I mean, God is, he's a God of surprises. I doubt there was any, uh, any disciple, any apostle who was thinking, you know, I think, I think Paul's about ready to come to Jesus. Like, I don't, he probably wasn't on like their, their good prayer list you know, we might have a good prayer list, the bad prayer list, you know, those prayer lists like, God, never mind, I won't go on the bad prayer list. Let's stick with the good prayer list. Um, and I think for us, as believers, those who are following Jesus, sometimes we can put people in categories. Like sometimes we can, we've got our unlikely group over here, our likely group over here, and then this unlikely, the unlikely group is people who currently uh, don't like us, maybe uh, and Paul was highly educated. He was a, a, had a, you know, a person of, of means, it seems like. He, um, he probably would fit into our category of unlikely. People that a lot of times Christians, we almost stay away, stay away from because, well, they're just too far gone, <laughs> if, if we're honest. But I, th- I think with, if God is pursuing Paul, then we are all unlikely recipients of his grace because it's a miracle that any of us believe and have, have found Jesus. And so it's also equally likely that we're all likely to believe. And so have hope. I mean, have hope for your, your son or daughter. Have hope for your mother, your father. Have, have hope for the one you've been praying for that you never know how God is going to, to bring them to faith. And as I uh, conclude this morning, I just want to briefly talk about Ananias. Ananias doesn't get a lot of press in churches. He's often overlooked, but he's had a profound impact just from a simple obedience uh, to Jesus. And we're we're not sure how Ananias came to faith. He lives in Damascus, 200 miles away from where Christianity was was starting. Um, But it says in Acts 9, 17, says, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. Now, he did that as a symbolic gesture of the Holy Spirit coming on him, but I also think that it was a gesture of love to a blind man. It was a gesture of an embrace. And, and so, I mean, think for a moment. Ananias knew that this guy was coming for him. Like, Ananias knew that, that Saul was coming to Damascus people who believe, like him, for, for his friends, for his, his family, potentially. Ananias probably knew people that Saul had, uh, had arrested or persecuted. And yet, in Acts 9, 17, placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother, he said, brother, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you're coming here has sent me. And when Saul heard the words, brother, it doesn't say this, it's a little holy imagination. Imagine the weight was so heavy on Saul. Like, these were the hands 
of the one who was supposed to be taken away in shackles. Instead, they became the hands of healing in Saul's life. And, and when he heard Ananias say, brother, I'm sure at the same time he was hearing his heavenly father say, I forgive you. I love you. I've been pursuing you. Welcome to the family. And now he has that confirmation that he's truly been forgiven, that he's been received by the Lord. And, and his first introduction to how the gospel tears down barriers and walls. And, and for the first time, an introduction to how the gospel is for everyone, regardless of past, regardless of uh, socioeconomic, regardless of, of race, this gospel is for everyone. And so when he hears that word, brother, all that grace and all that forgiveness, it's probably rushing over him. And he's feeling the hands of God, the hands of the ones he has persecuted, now touching him, now embracing him. And this morning, the risen Christ is relentlessly pursuing you. He is pursuing you this morning. And he's offering you a welcome into the family. And Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open the door, I will come in and I will dine with him. Now, sometimes God breaks into your life in a spectacular manner. And sometimes it's just a slow, gradual process. But the right way to come to God is however he brings you. That's the right way to come to God. So would, would you take a moment close your eyes and just reflect for a moment on what you heard and, and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit maybe today is the day that you want to say Matthew I want to put my faith in Jesus as my Savior I believe he died and rose again. I admit that I have, I have sinned against God. I want to put my hope in him. If there's anyone here today that that's your prayer, that's your desire, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. But would you just uh, raise your hand so I can see you, so I can pray for you? Is there anybody? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else today would say, I want to put my hope in Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you are still pursuing us. How that despite our, uh, the baggage that we bring, despite choices that we've, we've made, you are a God who pursues us. That while we were still sinners, you died for us. And I thank you for that. I thank you for those today who are putting their hope in you for their salvation. God, it is the greatest decision that they could ever make in their life to trust you for their salvation. I thank you how you're still moving, still speaking.